Chapter thirty five of Ivanhoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter thirty five. Arouse the tiger of Hyrcanian deserts. Strive with the half starved lion for his prey. Lesser the risk than rouse the slumbering fire of wild fanaticism. Anonymous. Our tale now returns to Isaac of York, mounted upon a mule, the gift of the outlaw, with two tall yeomen to act as his garden guides. The Jew had set out for the preceptory of Templestowe for the purpose of negotiating his daughter's redemption. The preceptory was but a day's journey from the demolished castle of Torquilstone, and the Jew had hoped to reach it before nightfall. Accordingly, having dismissed his guides at the verge of the forest, and rewarded them with a piece of silver, he began to press on with such speed as his weariness permitted him to exert. But his strength failed him totally ere he had reached within four miles of the temple court. Racking pains shot along his back and through his limbs, and the excessive anguish which he felt at heart, being now augmented by bodily suffering, he was rendered altogether incapable of proceeding farther than a small market-town, where dwelt a Jewish rabbi of his tribe, eminent in the medical profession, and to whom Isaac was well known. Nathan ben Israel received his suffering countrymen with that kindness which the law prescribed, and which the Jews practiced to each other. He insisted on his betaking himself to repose, and used such remedies as were then in most repute to check the progress of the fever, which terror, fatigue, ill-usage, and sorrow had brought upon the poor old Jew. On the morrow, when Isaac proposed to arise and pursue his journey, Nathan remonstrated against his purpose, both as his host and as his physician. It might cost him, he said, his life. But Isaac replied, that more than life and death depended upon his going that morning to Templestowe. "'To Templestowe?' said his host, with surprise again felt his pulse, and then muttered to himself, "'His fever is abated, yet seems his mind somewhat alienated and disturbed.' "'And why not to Templestowe?' answered his patient. "'I grant thee, Nathan, that it is a dwelling of those to whom the despised children of the promise are a stumbling-block and an abomination.' Yet thou knowest that pressing affairs of traffic sometimes carry us among these bloodthirsty Nazarene soldiers, and that we visit the preceptories of the Templars, as well as the commanderies of the Knights Hospitallers, as they are called. I know it well, said Nathan, but wottest thou that Lucas de Beaumanois, the chief of their order and whom they term Grand Master, is now himself at Templestowe? I know it not, said Isaac. Our last letters from our brethren at Paris advised us that he was at that city, beseeching Philip for aid against the Sultan Saladin. He hath since come to England, unexpected by his brethren, said Ben Israel, and he cometh among them with a strong and outstretched arm to correct and to punish. His countenance is kindled in anger against those who have departed from the vow which they have made, and great is the fear of those sons of Belial. Thou must have heard of his name? It is well known unto me, said Isaac. The Gentiles deliver this Lucas Beaumanois as a man zealous to slaying for every point of the Nazarene law. 
and our brethren have termed him a fierce destroyer of the Saracens, and a cruel tyrant to the children of the promise. And truly have they termed him, said Nathan the physician. Other Templars may be moved from the purpose of their heart by pleasure, or bribed by promise of gold and silver, but Beaumanoir is of a different stamp, hating sensuality, despising treasure, and pressing forward to that which they call the crown of martyrdom. The God of Jacob speedily send it unto him, and unto them all. Specially hath this proud man extended his glove over the children of Judah, as holy David over Edom, holding the murder of a Jew to be an offering of as sweet savor as the death of a Saracen. Impious and false teachings has he said even of the virtues of our medicines, as if they were the devices of Satan. The Lord rebuke him. Nevertheless, said Isaac, I must present myself at Templestowe, though he hath made his face like unto a fiery furnace seven times heated. He then explained to Nathan the pressing cause of his journey. The rabbi listened with interest, and testified his sympathy after the fashion of his people, rending his clothes and saying, Ah, my daughter, ah, my daughter! Alas, for the beauty of Zion! Alas, for the captivity of Israel! Thou seest, said Isaac, how it stands with me, and that I may not tarry. Peradventure, the presence of this Lucas Beaumanoir, being the chief man over them, may turn Brian de Bois-Gilbert from the ill which he doth meditate, and that he may deliver to me my beloved daughter Rebecca. Go thou, said Nathan ben Israel, and be wise, for wisdom availed Daniel in the den of lions into which he was cast, and may it go well with thee, even as thine heart wisheth. Yet, if thou canst, keep thee from the presence of the Grand Master, for to do foul scorn to our people is his morning and evening delight. It may be, if thou couldst speak with Bois-Gilbert in private, thou shalt the better prevail with him. For men say that these accursed Nazarenes are not of one mind in the preceptory. May their counsels be confounded and brought to shame. But do thou, brother, return to me as if it were to the house of thy father, and bring me word how it has sped with thee. And well do I hope thou wilt bring with thee Rebecca, even the scholar of the wise Miriam, whose cures the Gentiles slandered, as if they had been wrought by necromancy. Isaac accordingly bade his friend farewell, and about an hour's riding brought him before the preceptory of Templestowe. This establishment of the Templars was seated amidst fair meadows and pastures, which the devotion of the former preceptor had bestowed upon their order. It was strong and well fortified, a point never neglected by these knights, and which the disordered state of England rendered peculiarly necessary. Two halberdiers, clad in black, guarded the drawbridge, and others, in the same sad livery, glided to and fro upon the walls with a funereal pace, resembling spectres more than soldiers. The inferior officers of the order were thus dressed, ever since their use of white garments, similar to those of the knights and esquires, had given rise to a combination of certain false brethren in the mountains of Palestine, terming themselves Templars, and bringing great dishonor on the order. A knight was now and then seen to cross the court in his long white cloak, his head depressed on his breast, and his arms folded. They passed each other, if they chanced to meet, with a slow, solemn, and mute greeting, for such was the rule of their order, quoting thereupon the holy texts, 
in many words thou shalt not avoid sin, and life and death are in the power of the tongue. In a word, the stern ascetic rigor of the temple discipline, which had been so long exchanged for prodigal and licentious indulgence, seemed at once to have revived at Templestowe under the severe eye of Lucas Beaumanoir. Isaac paused at the gate to consider how he might seek entrance in the manner most likely to bespeak favor, for he was well aware that to his unhappy race the reviving fanaticism of the order was not less dangerous than their unprincipled licentiousness, and that his religion would be the object of hate and persecution in the one case, as his wealth would have exposed him in the other to the extortions of unrelenting oppression. Meantime, Lucas Beaumanoir walked in a small garden belonging to the preceptory, included within the precincts of its exterior fortification, and held sad and confidential communication with a brother of his order, who had come in his company from Palestine. The Grand Master was a man advanced in age, as was testified by his long gray beard, and the shaggy gray eyebrows overhanging eyes, of which, however, years had been unable to quench the fire. A formidable warrior, his thin and severe features retained the soldier's fierceness of expression. An ascetic bigot, they were no less marked by the emaciation of abstinence and the spiritual pride of the self-satisfied devotee. Yet with these severer traits of physiognomy, there was mixed somewhat striking and noble, arising doubtless from the great part which his high office called upon him to act among monarchs and princes, and from the habitual exercise of supreme authority over the valiant and high-born knights, who were united by the rules of the order. His stature was tall, and his gait, undepressed by age and toil, was erect and stately. His white mantle was shaped with severe regularity, according to the rule of St. Bernard himself, being composed of what was then called burel cloth, exactly fitted to the size of the wearer, and bearing on the left shoulder the octangular cross peculiar to the order, formed of red cloth. No vair or ermine decked this garment, but in respect of his age, the Grand Master, as permitted by the rules, wore his doublet lined and trimmed with the softest lambskin, dressed with the wool outwards, which was the nearest approach he could regularly make to the use of fur, then the greatest luxury of dress. In his hand he bore that singular abacus, or staff of office, with which Templars were usually represented, having at the upper end a round plate, on which was engraved the cross of the order, inscribed within a circle or oral, as heralds term it. His companion, who attended on this great personage, had nearly the same dress in all respects, but his extreme deference towards his superior showed that no other equality subsisted between them. The preceptor, for such he was in rank, walked not in a line with the Grand Master, but just so far behind that Beaumanoir could speak to him without turning round his head. Conrad, said the Grand Master, dear companion of my battles and toils, to thy faithful bosom alone I can confide my sorrows. To thee alone can I tell how oft, since I came to this kingdom, I have desired to be dissolved and to be with the just. Not one object in England hath met mine eye which it could rest upon with pleasure, save the tombs of our brethren beneath the massive roof of our temple church in yonder proud capital. O oh, valiant Robert de Rose, did I exclaim internally, 
as I gazed upon those good soldiers of the cross, where they lie sculptured on their sepulchres. O worthy William de Marischal, open your marble cells, and take to your repose a weary brother, who would rather strive with a hundred thousand pagans than witness the decay of our holy order. It is but true, answered Conrad Montfichet, it is but too true, and the irregularities of our brethren in England are even more gross than those in France. Because they are more wealthy, answered the Grand Master. Bear with me, brother, although I should something vaunt myself. Thou knowest the life I have led, keeping each point of my order, striving with devils embodied and disembodied, striking down the roaring lion who goeth about seeking whom he may devour, like a good knight and devout priest, wheresoever I met with him. Even as blessed St. Bernard hath prescribed to us in the forty-fifth capital of our rule, ut leo semper feriatur. But by the holy temple, the zeal which hath devoured my substance and my life, yea, the very nerves and marrow of my bones, by that very holy temple I swear to thee, that save thyself and some few that still retain the ancient severity of our order, I look upon no brethren whom I can bring my soul to embrace under that holy name. What say our statutes, and how do our brethren observe them? They should wear no vain or worldly ornament, no crest upon their helmet, no gold upon stirrup or bridle bit. Yet who now go pranked about so proudly and so gaily as the poor soldiers of the temple? They are forbidden by our statutes to take one bird by means of another, to shoot beasts with bow or arblast, to halloo to a hunting horn, or to spur the horse after game. But now, at hunting and hawking, and each idle sport of wood and river, who so prompt as the Templars in all these fond vanities? They are forbidden to read, save what their superior permitted, or to listen to what is read, save such holy things as may be recited aloud during the hours of refaction. But lo! Their ears are at the command of idle minstrels, and their eyes study empty romance. They were commanded to extirpate magic and heresy. Lo, they are charged with studying the accursed cabalistical secrets of the Jews, and the magic of the Paynim Saracens. Simpleness of diet was prescribed to them, roots, pottage, rules, eating flesh but thrice a week, because the accustomed feeding on flesh is a dishonorable corruption of the body and behold, their tables groan under delicate fare. Their drink was to be water, and now to drink like a Templar is the boast of each jolly boon companion. This very garden, filled as it is with curious herbs and trees sent from the eastern climes, better becomes the harem of an unbelieving emir than the plot which Christian monks should devote to raise their homely pot-herbs. And, oh, Conrad, well it were that the relaxation of discipline stopped even here. Well thou knowest that we were forbidden to receive those devout women, who at the beginning were associated as sisters of our order, because, saith the forty-sixth chapter, the ancient enemy hath, by female society, withdrawn many from the right path to paradise. Nay, in the last capital, being as it were the copestone which our blessed founder placed on the pure and undefiled doctrine, which he had enjoined, we are prohibited from offering, even to our sisters and our mothers, the kiss of affection. Ut omnium mulierum fugiantur oscula. I shame to speak, I shame to think, of the corruptions which have rushed in upon us even like a flood. 
the souls of our pure founders, the souls of Hugh de Payenne and Godfrey de Saint-Omer, and of the blessed seven who first joined in dedicating their lives to the service of the temple, are disturbed even in the enjoyment of paradise itself. I have seen them, Conrad, in the visions of the night. Their sainted eyes shed tears for the sins and follies of their brethren, and for the foul and shameful luxury in which they wallow. Womanwa, they say, thou slumberest, awake! There is a stain in the fabric of the temple, deep and foul as that left by the streaks of leprosy on the walls of the infected houses of old. The soldiers of the cross, who would shun the glance of a woman as the eye of a basilisk, live in open sin, not with the females of their own race only, but with the daughters of the accursed heathen, and more accursed Jew. Beaumanois, thou sleepest, up and avenge our cause. Slay the sinners, male and female. Take to thee the brand of Phineas. The vision fled, Conrad, but as I awaked I could still hear the clank of their mail, and see the waving of their white mantles. And I will do according to their word. I will purify the fabric of the temple, and the unclean stones in which the plague is, I will remove and cast out of the building. Yet bethink thee, reverend father, said Montfichet, the stain hath become ingrained by time and consuetude. Let thy reformation be cautious, as it is just and wise. No, Montfichet, answered the stern old man, it must be sharp and sudden. The order is on the crisis of its fate. The sobriety, self-devotion, and piety of our predecessors made us powerful friends. Our presumption, our wealth, our luxury, have raised up against us mighty enemies. We must cast away these riches, which are a temptation to princes. We must lay down that presumption, which is an offense to them. We must reform that license of manners, which is a scandal to the whole Christian world. Or, mark my words, the order of the temple will be utterly demolished, and the place thereof shall no more be known among the nations. Now may God avert such a calamity, said the preceptor. Amen, said the Grand Master, with solemnity, but we must deserve his aid. I tell thee, Conrad, that neither the powers in heaven nor the powers on earth will longer endure the wickedness of this generation. My intelligence is sure. The ground on which our fabric is reared is already undermined, and each addition we make to the structure of our greatness will only sink it the sooner in the abyss. We must retrace our steps, and show ourselves the faithful champions of the cross, sacrificing to our calling, not alone our blood and our lives, not alone our lusts and our vices, but our ease, our comforts, and our natural affections, and act as men convinced that many a pleasure which may be lawful to others is forbidden to the vowed soldier of the temple. At this moment a squire, clothed in a threadbare vestment, for the aspirants after this holy order wore during their novitiate the cast-off garments of the knights, entered the garden, and, bowing profoundly before the Grand Master, stood silent, awaiting his permission ere he presumed to tell his errand. Is it not more seemly, said the Grand Master, to see this Damian, clothed in the garments of Christian humility, thus appear with reverend silence before his superior, than but two days since, when the fond fool was decked in a painted coat, and jangling as pert and as proud as any popinjay? Speak, Damian, we permit thee, what is thine errand? A Jew stands without the gate, noble and reverend father, 
said the squire, who prays to speak with Brother Brian de Bois-Gilbert. Thou wert right to give me knowledge of it, said the Grand Master. In our presence a preceptor is but as a common compare of our order, who may not walk according to his own will, but to that of his master, even according to the text, in the hearing of the ear he hath obeyed me. It imports us especially to know of this Bois-Gilbert's proceedings, said he, turning to his companion. Report speaks of him brave and valiant, said Conrad. And truly is he so spoken of, said the Grand Master. In our valor only are we not degenerated from our predecessors, the heroes of the cross. But Brother Brian came into our order a moody and disappointed man, stirred, I doubt me, to take our vows and to renounce the world, not in sincerity of soul, but as one whom some touch of light discontent had driven into penitence. Since then he hath become an active and earnest agitator, a murmurer, and a machinator, and a leader amongst those who impugn our authority, not considering that the rule is given to the master even by the symbol of the staff and the rod, the staff to support the infirmities of the weak, the rod to correct the faults of delinquents. Damien, he continued, lead the Jew to our presence. The squire departed with a profound reverence, and in a few minutes returned, marshalling in Isaac of York. No naked slave, ushered into the presence of some mighty prince, could approach his judgment seat with more profound reverence and terror than that which the Jew drew near to the presence of the Grand Master. When he had approached within the distance of three yards, Beaumanoir made a sign with his staff that he should come no farther. The Jew kneeled down on the earth which he kissed in token of reverence, then rising, stood before the Templars, his hands folded on his bosom, his head bowed on his breast, in all the submission of oriental slavery. Damien, said the Grand Master, retire and have a guard ready to await our sudden call, and suffer no one to enter the garden until we shall leave it. The squire bowed and retreated. Jew, continued the haughty old man, mark me, it suits not our condition to hold with thee long communication, nor do we waste words nor time upon any one. Wherefore be brief in thy answers to what questions I shall ask thee, and let thy words be of truth, for if thy tongue doubles with me, I will have it torn from thy misbelieving jaws. The Jew was about to reply, but the Grand Master went on. Peace, unbeliever, not a word in our presence, save an answer to our questions. What is thy business with our brother, Brian de Bois-Gilbert? Isaac gasped with terror and uncertainty. To tell his tale might be interpreted into scandalizing the order. Yet, unless he told it, what hope could he have of achieving his daughter's deliverance? Beaumanoir saw his mortal apprehension, and condescended to give him some assurance. Fear nothing, he said, for thy wretched person, Jew, so thou dealest uprightly in this matter. I demand again to know from thee thy business with Brian de Bois-Gilbert. I am the bearer of a letter, stammered out the Jew, so please your reverend valor to that good knight from prior Aimer of the Abbey of Jorval. Said I not these were evil times, Conrad? said the master. A Cistercian prior sends a letter to a soldier of the temple, and can find no more fitting messenger than an unbelieving Jew. Give me the letter. The Jew, with trembling hands, undid the folds of his Armenian cap, 
in which he had deposited the prior's tablets for the greater security, and was about to approach, with hand extended and body crouched, to place it within the reach of his grim interrogator. "'Back, dog!' said the Grand Master. "'I touch not misbelievers, save with the sword. Conrad, take thou the letter from the Jew, and give it to me.' Beaumanoir, being thus possessed of the tablets, inspected the outside carefully, and then proceeded to undo the pack-thread which secured its folds. "'Reverend Father,' said Conrad, interposing, though with much deference, "'wilt thou break the seal?' "'And will I not?' said Beaumanoir, with a frown. "'Is it not written in the forty-second capital, "'De lectione literarum, that a Templar shall not receive a letter, "'no, not from his father, without communicating the same to the Grand Master, "'and reading it in his presence?' He then perused the letter in haste, with an expression of surprise and horror, read it over again more slowly, then holding it out to Conrad with one hand, and slightly striking it with the other, exclaimed, Here is goodly stuff for one Christian man to write to another, and both members, and no inconsiderable members, of religious professions. When, said he solemnly, and looking upward, wilt thou come with thy fanners to purge the threshing-floor? Montfichet took the letter from his superior and was about to peruse it. "'Read it aloud, Conrad,' said the Grand Master, "'and do thou,' to Isaac, "'attend to the purport of it, "'for we will question thee concerning it.' Conrad read the letter, which was in these words. "'Aimer, by divine grace, "'prior of the Cistercian house of St. Mary's of Jorval, "'to Sir Brian de Bois-Gilbert, "'a knight of the Holy Order of the Temple,' wisheth health with the bounties of King Bacchus and of my Lady Venus. Touching our present condition, dear brother, we are a captive in the hands of certain lawless and godless men, who have not feared to detain our person, and put us to ransom, whereby we have also learned affront de Bouffe's misfortune, and that thou hast escaped with that fair Jewish sorceress, whose black eyes have bewitched thee. We are heartily rejoiced of thy safety." Nevertheless, we pray thee to be on thy guard in the matter of the second witch of Endor, for we are privately assured that your great master, who careth not a bean for cherry cheeks and black eyes, comes from Normandy to diminish your mirth and amend your misdoings. Wherefore we pray you heartily to beware, and to be found watching, even as the holy text hath it, Invenienter Vigilantis. And the wealthy Jew her father, Isaac of York, having prayed of me letters in his behalf, I give him these, earnestly advising, and in a sort entreating, that you do hold the damsel to ransom, seeing he will pay you from his bags as much as may find fifty damsels upon safer terms, whereof I trust to have my part when we make merry together, as true brothers, not forgetting the wine-cup. For what saith the text, Venum laetificat cor hominis, and again, Rex delectabitur pulchritine tua. Till which merry meeting we shall wish you farewell, given from this den of thieves about the hour of matins, Amer Prior S. M. Jorval Sienus. Postscriptum. Truly your golden chain hath not long abidden with me, and will now sustain, around the neck of an outlaw deer-stealer, the whistle wherewith he calleth on his hounds. What sayest thou to this, Conrad? said the Grand Master. Den of thieves, and a fit residence is a den of thieves for such a prior. 
no wonder that the hand of God is upon us, and that in the Holy Land we lose place by place, foot by foot, before the infidels, when we have such churchmen as this Amor. And what meaneth he, I trow, by the second witch of Endor? Said he to his confidant, something apart. Conrad was better acquainted, perhaps by practice, with the jargon of gallantry than was his superior, and he expounded the passage which embarrassed the Grand Master to be a sort of language used by worldly men towards those whom they loved par amours, but the explanation did not satisfy the bigoted Beaumanois. There is more in it than thou dost guess, Conrad. Thy simplicity is no match for this deep abyss of wickedness. This Rebecca of York was a pupil of that Miriam of whom thou hast heard. Thou shalt hear the Jew own it even now. Then turning to Isaac, he said aloud, Thy daughter, then, is a prisoner with Brian de Bois-Gilbert? Ay, reverend valorous sir, stammered poor Isaac, and whatever ransom a poor man may pay for her deliverance, Peace, said the Grand Master. This thy daughter hath practised the art of healing, hath she not? Ay, gracious sir, answered the Jew with more confidence, and knight and yeoman, squire and vassal, may bless the goodly gift which heaven hath assigned to her. Many a one can testify that she hath recovered them by her art, when every other human aid hath proved vain. But the blessing of the God of Jacob was upon her. Beaumanoir turned to Mount Fichet with a grim smile. See, brother, he said, the deceptions of the devouring enemy. Behold the baits with which he fishes for souls, giving a poor space of earthly life in exchange for eternal happiness hereafter. Well said our blessed rule, Semper percutiatur leo vorans. Up on the lion, down with the destroyer, said he, shaking aloft his mystic abacus, as if in defiance of the powers of darkness. Thy daughter worketh the cures, I doubt not, thus he went on to address the Jew, by words and sighs and periaps and other cabalistical mysteries. Nay, reverend and brave knight, answered Isaac, but in chief measure by a balsam of marvellous virtue. Where had she that secret? said Beaumanoir. It was delivered to her, answered Isaac reluctantly, by Miriam, a sage matron of our tribe. Ah, false Jew, said the Grand Master, was it not from that same witch Miriam, the abomination of whose enchantments have been heard of throughout every Christian land? exclaimed the Grand Master, crossing himself. Her body was burnt at a stake, and her ashes were scattered to the four winds. And so be it with me and mine order, if I do not as much to her pupil, and more also. I will teach her to throw a spell and incantation over the soldiers of the blessed temple. There, Damian, spurn this Jew from the gate. Shoot him dead if he oppose or turn again. With his daughter we will deal as the Christian law and our own high office warrant. Poor Isaac was hurried off accordingly, and expelled from the preceptory, all his entreaties and even his offers, unheard and disregarded. He could do not better than return to the house of the rabbi, and endeavor, through his means, to learn how his daughter was to be disposed of. He had hitherto feared for her honor, he was now to tremble for her life. Meanwhile the Grand Master ordered to his presence the preceptor of Templestowe. End of chapter 35